everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Brad Large. Hey, how's it going, everybody? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Mark Summy. Hey, Charles. How are you? Uh, we're doing good. Um, now, you haven't been on for a few weeks. Do you want to just remind people who you are? Sure, yeah. So I, uh, I run Minute 7, which is a, a SaaS product that does time and expense tracking for professional services firm. So for folks that want to, you know, track their time and expense to a specific customer or job and then sync that data into QuickBooks for billing purposes, that's one of the primary use cases that, uh, that we serve. And uh, professional services firms are our customers, which is sort of generic, but what that translates to in terms of actual businesses, our customers are you know, we have a lot of engineering services firms, a lot of uh, law firms, architecture firms, consultants. Those are the types of uh, firms that really connect well with our products. Yeah, that's what I do. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call to help me find a developer who can build it. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile developers that you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to g2i.co to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to g2i.co to learn more about G2i. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah, so we were talking before the show and you mentioned that, uh, um, at least in SaaS products, uh, technical founders tend to get to a certain point and then, uh, they need to start rethinking where they got to. And I, I did find that I did run into a few, um, I, I've run into some of these things that I think you're going to talk about and also run into them when I was a freelancer, right? Cause a lot of the focus was on the technical stuff and I didn't have the, what the background or the training to think about some of the other things in the in the business there either. So I'm yeah. kind of curious just where you're going to take that. And yeah. 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 So, you know, this is my first foray. I've been working running minute seven for three years now. And I, I think there's a couple of things that I thought were, you know, that I, I sort of saw as an outsider about small SaaS companies and have been proven to be true and for minute seven. And I think there's a, they're true. It's true of a lot of SaaS companies that were created by a technical founder by themselves. And, and those, those things are um, one, they're, they're typically underpriced in terms of what they're charging versus what the value is that they're giving their customers. Um, so, you know, they started, they, you know, sometimes it's a problem that they're facing themselves oftentimes, right? Because they, it's just where their mind is, they're problem solvers. So they are facing a problem, they know how to write software. So they're like, oh, I can fix this problem, I'm going to build a product and that starts the company. But they don't sort of look at it from a sort of uh, a higher 10,000 foot level of like, what is the value I'm giving? They just sort of like, think, oh, okay, this is worth something to somebody, I'll just build it, put a price on it, and get it out the door. And then they don't really mess with pricing. So <laughs> they might have the same pricing for 
five years, um, even though they've continued to put more time and energy into the product and made it better and built new features and the pricing still the same. Um, so that's something we've done with minute seven is, you know, we've continued to invest, but we've also in, increased pricing to reflect the value of the product that, that we've built. And I think that's true of a lot of other SaaS businesses out there. They're just under underpriced. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is, this is again generic, so I, I don't want to be perceived as sort of beating up on technical founders, but tech, fa- technical founders beat up on marketing guys enough. So I think it's fair, uh, fair play. Um, but I think stereotypically or generically technical founders, they like to just build the product and be like, that's, you know, if I have a good product, it should sell itself. Um, which is true in rare cases. <laughs> uh, I think everyone sees like something like, I don't know, Slack and they're like, Oh, see, they built a great product and they didn't have to do marketing. And that's just how software is sold. But for the majority of SaaS companies, that's not how uh, software is sold. You need to put time and energy behind uh, sales and marketing. So I think uh, that's another thing that I think is true of a lot of SaaS companies that are started by a technical founder is they just build the product and they haven't spent a lot of time on thinking through like, how do I get this in front of my customers and, um, you know, present it in a compelling way. So create, you know, videos about the product sort of explaining the value of the product and, um, making it look really nice. Um, they might, you know, they might just be sort of brute force. Like it does the job. (laughs) Uh, we're not actually thinking about the look and feel of the product. Um, so I think that's another thing that, that we've spent time on and improved and, and we've had success on. Um, and then lastly, I think it's, this is a broader topic, but it's sort of like the company achieves a certain amount of revenue and it's enough for the founder. And they don't do much in terms of like how to much strategy or thinking around like how do what do we need to do to get to that next level? Because it's sort of achieved a, a comfort um, of like, it's generating X dollars a month for me. Um, that's fine. It doesn't churn that much. It, it, let's just keep it as is. Um, but in order to, to sort of, you know, if you want to, double or triple the size of your business, you have to do something different than what you're doing today. And so that means like, um, you know, hiring, maybe investing in customer support so that you're free to do other things. So maybe a a technical founder is, is doing the customer support in addition to the software development, in addition to the marketing and sales. And so to get to that next level, you need to invest in people to do those things so that, whoever is driving the business can continue to find the next growth opportunities. And so if the, if the founder is doing all those things, they're not able to, to focus on the, the strategy and the, and the growth opportunities and they're sort of bogged down with the day-to-day operations of the a business and, and not able to, to spend their time on the things that are going to help them get to that, that next level. So I think those are three things that, that, were true of minute seven that I think are true of a lot of uh, SaaS companies that are built by a technical founder and and achieve a certain size. And then they just sort of flatline 
because of, of those reasons. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of curious, just starting with the first one with the, the value and the pricing. Um, why, why do you think they underpriced it or why do you think they, I mean, I have my own theories, but <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah. So the, I think the, what SAS tends to do is save people's time, right? Like if before using a, a SAS product, you're probably using a spreadsheet or paper and then you're having to, I mean, that's the, what in my mind from a generic standpoint, SAS is often replacing spreadsheets in many cases. Mm-hmm. So if you're replacing spreadsheet for a law firm and that law firm, that lawyer is billing $400 an hour and you save him an hour a month, that's $400 a month that you're saving him, right? So right. that's not how a developer thinks. They sort of think like, uh, I don't know, just that's not in my experience. They sort of look at what uh, what other SaaS products charge and I don't want to be priced too high because then I won't get any customers or sort of that fear. But I think what, you know, they should be focused on is like, who are our customers? And if we're saving them a lot of time and their char- and their time is very valuable, then our product is very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way to sort of find the appropriate pricing for your product is to look at, at how, how you're do- driving value for your customer. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, uh, we, uh, on JavaScript Jabber earlier today, we were talking about serverless, um, computing, which is cloud computing. It's a form of cloud computing. And uh, one of our panelists was just like, well, it's not that big a deal for me to spin up a server, right? And just run it on the server instead of running it serverless. And, you know, so we had this conversation about, you know, where, where the value was. And the reality was, was that um, if you lack the expertise to run the server and you only have the time to figure out how to write the code mm-hmm. for the JavaScript, then it saves you all that other effort and all that other effort is then worth it. Even if you're paying a premium per compute cycle that you run mm-hmm. because you don't have to spend the time to do that. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting way of looking at it and thinking about, okay, you know, what is the value here? Right? So let's say that I am saving an attorney $400 a month. I mean, if I charge him $400, he may be inclined to just spend the hour, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're not, you're, yeah, you're not going to charge him that amount, but you're also like charging him $4 a month is he's willing to pay much more than $4 a month. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you got to, there's an experiment of like finding that right price amount, but you're right. At some point people will determine I can do it myself, but finding that in between like what priced way too low and them churning is the, is the right amount. Um, right. So yeah, so you, you figure out the pricing and yeah, so you're probably not charging enough. So let's say that we get that figured out. And, and I'm, I'm curious, how, how do you start to figure that out? Like if I'm the technical co-founder, I mean, I could probably hire somebody or partner with somebody who could figure that out, but mm-hmm. let's say that I'm not really in a position to do that, or I haven't found the person that, you know, I'm comfortable doing that with, how, how do I overcome that? How do I start figuring that piece out? Like if, like, um, for us, our typical customer is like an engineering services firm that has 10 employees or something, right? And if they have 10 employees and they're probably generating a few million dollars in revenue just based on what 
a lot of engineering services firms do. And so if you look at it from that perspective and you're like thinking, okay, well, before using our system, they were managing spreadsheets and they had 10 different people entering spreadsheets and then they had to pay a, maybe they hire a a bookkeeper Mm -hmm. who is managed. They have to hire a bookkeeper to, to manage these timesheets. And so then you're like, okay, well that lady is managing, she's spending five hours a month. I don't know, maybe she's spending five hours a week, but that's the type of analysis I would look at. Like what are they doing today? And how much are they time and money are they spending on it? And if you can price your product beneath it and it's easier to use, like some of it's cost, right? The fact Mm -hmm. that I'm cheaper, but it's also like no one actually wants to deal with spreadsheets and paper anyway. So you're, even if you're at equal to the cost of that person and the process is easier and people like it better, you could actually in some cases be more expensive and people just are willing to pay it because they don't want to deal with the hassle of what their current process is. So, um, I would, to find the right pricing, I would really dig at what, what your customers are doing before they, before they would use your service and then pricing it somewhere near that, um, is, is how I would look at it. I gotcha. And then you just experiment from there. Moving yeah, up, exactly. Moving I mean, I would start. I would actually start at the a little bit above what you think you can get. And if if you're not able to win customers, then you're probably too high. Um, but my guess is it your your initial thought is going to be too low because you don't realize how much value you're delivering. Yeah, so, when I was um, first uh, first freelancing, I did that. So I went in. I interviewed a bunch of my other friends had just been laid off. So they went and interviewed with the company. They were looking to hire outsource somebody to do Ruby on rails. And all my friends came in and they bid 150 bucks an hour or something. And I came in and I bid 60 bucks an hour. Cause I had no idea. <laughs> and it turned out that you, well, I got the contract mm-hmm. and then um, I was talking to my friends and like, well, how much did you bid? And I told them and they were like, Holy cow. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so the next time I bid right. 150 bucks. So, right. right. Yeah. I mean, and it also was like, there's a lot of things that go into pricing too. Like if you, if, if you're priced as like a, a top tier product and your product isn't a top tier product and your customer support sucks, like that's a bad strategy. So you have Mm -hmm. to combine pricing with, if you're going to increase pricing, you have to have a good product that can support that pricing and you have to have good customer support that can support that pricing. So you can't just look at, pricing in isolation and think, you know, especially if you're going to raise pricing on existing customers, you have to, they have to feel like they're, you're in it. You're, you know, not just like trying to grab money that you're, and that's something that, that we, you know, when we think about pricing increase, we don't do them that frequently. And we feel like we have to earn that price increase by continually building good features that our customers need and ask for. And we have to continually be delivering a high quality of service from a customer support so that when we ask for a price increase, they can, you know, they feel that it's kind of a, you know, sounds kind of maybe willy nilly, but that I think your customers do sense that like if you're just increasing pricing and not building features and the product is buggy and the customer support stinks, 
they're they're going to notice that and you're probably not going to have a successful price increase because your churn's going to go up so you have to you have to look at the price increase in the context of the the total business and what you're doing right yeah that's an interesting concept i don't know if does minute seven do like tiered pricing on there? Like do you no. guys have different tiers or is it just one? We just have one. We've batted around that idea. We sort of optimized for clarity and ease of, I don't like the sneakiness of some other, some of our competitors, they charge not tiered pricing isn't necessarily sneaky, but they have these other fees that are sort of less visible, like monthly yeah. account fees or. Setup. Oh, I hate that stuff. Yeah. It drives me nuts. So like they'll have like monthly or they'll have like a setup fee, which was sort of like you onboarding the customer, which I think should just be part of your pricing. So anyway, we, we maybe we might evolve to some sort of tiered pricing as we like build new features and we feel like it makes sense for the business. But right now we like simple. We don't like sneakiness. So we just charge one. We have one price for, for everybody. Yeah. Working in CRMs, that's the thing that I notice about a lot of these, um, like any type of pricing changes or updates or anything like that. A lot of CRMs have tiers for that reason. And you see it pretty common in, in that form because then if they add new features, it might be added to a higher price tier, right? So if you want that additional feature. So I was just thinking through how you could kind of not jack the price up on existing customers, but still continue to offer innovation and be, you know, price accordingly, right? Because really you, you want to keep your customers front of mind with any mm -hmm. company, but especially a SaaS where churn can be so high. I'm mm -hmm. I'm assuming I don't have sure. a SaaS. So <laughs> I'm yeah. just going off of you know no, anecdotal no. and other people. But that, I mean at that point you'd still want to say, okay, well, like you said, I don't want to jack up the price on all these people who are used to paying 10 bucks a month or whatever. And now mm -hmm. all of a sudden charge them 20 because one, do you even know if they need those features? Right. Um, but you know, one of the big assumptions uh, in this conversation, I just want to call out is that takes knowing your customer. Did you guys go through like any kind of surveying or trying, like, how did you yeah. guys get to know your customer base to really get at the, the heart of what they wanted and needed? So yeah, it's a good point. And it is something we spent a lot of time on. So when I started running the business, I ran customer support for a, a while. So I had a really good feel on, on customers. So that was one thing. And then the second thing is we did run some pricing surveys. Um, and I can't remember there's a, there's a, there's actually a, a whole business created around to your point, Charles, about tools that people can use. There's this guy named Patrick Campbell and I can't remember the name of his business right now. I'll look it up, but he runs, um, a company that just helps you analyze pricing for SaaS companies. Um, profit well. Yeah, profit well, exactly. Um, so they have like, I think they have shared documents on how to run surveys to your customers on, and we we di we did one of those. So it was a combination of like knowing our customer, running some price surveys, and then a little bit of gut feel, sort of the stuff that I was talking about in terms of like who our customers are and like how profitable they are and like how much value we're delivering sort of putting that into like a little black box and coming out with 
what we felt were like was the right pricing. But you, that, that points a really good one, Brad, which is like, I think pricing has to start with like a real deep knowledge of your customer and knowing them well and trying to use data where you can. Like if you can run a survey, I would encourage you to do that. It's kind of hard at the beginning when you don't necessarily have a customer list. So you have to get a, like a prospective customer list, which is sort of a weird thing because they're not paying. So I don't know how accurate that data ultimately is if they're not actually paying. But they're thinking it's like playing like, poker with your buddies. If, there's, yeah. if they're not pitching in five bucks, they play like they're crazy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, how much would you be willing to pay for it? It's like, uh, people could. But if you if you actually are paying currently, you're probably more likely to give more, uh, I don't know, accurate feedback. But. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Makes sense. What was your second point? I'm trying to remember. Um, So my second point was around um, product and or marketing and sales, I think, where technical founders tend to there's a stereotype around like the product just the product should sell itself. Um, and I don't think that's the case for the majority of SaaS businesses. You have to spend time and energy on sales and marketing, which includes like marketing materials, including like video videos about your product, sort of pitching the, the value. It includes like, you know, basic online marketing strategies, like, SEO, trying those things like that, or paid marketing strategies and referral partnerships. So all those things that technical founders tend to not want to do because they like to write software and they don't like to spend their time doing that stuff. Um, those are all, all ways that you can get a good return on your, your investment if, if you can find the right channels and the right strategies that make sense for your business. And that, that really is like a series of experiments, um, which again, technical founders don't, they, not all, but some, this is again, generic. So I don't, hopefully uh, all the technical founders don't <laughs> take offense to what I'm saying, but <laughs> for the ones that, that I am talking about, like they either, maybe it's even a side business for them, right? So it's not necessarily that they don't want to, it's just they don't have the time to do it, right? Maybe they have a, a job that they're, that they're doing and they created this business on the side and they don't have the time to 
to do the things that they, they know that need to be done. So anyway, I think either hiring someone or making the time to experiment with online marketing is another kind of low hanging fruit that I see opportunity for, for these small SaaS companies that were created by a technical founder. One of the things that I see along those lines is there are SaaS companies out there that they see the existing market. I see this all the time. There's a, and then they, they don't reinvent the wheel, but they improve the design, right? So they come out and they see uh, an additional need, right? So QuickBooks does a lot of stuff, but it doesn't integrate your time tracking. So Minute 7 jumps in and does that, right? Mm-hmm. With CRMs, you know, there's, there's so many out there that people go, oh man, this CRM does this good, but it's not great at this, right? Because each CRM was founded with a specific problem in mind and and they try their best to do that. But one of the things from a marketing standpoint that I know drives a lot of people nuts and I see a ton of churn with CRMs about is that they don't define what they do the best and what they're not so great at, right? And so people can make, there is, as far as I'm concerned, there is no apples to apples comparison with a CRM product out there. It's almost impossible to compare CRMs across the board because Mm -hmm. the amount of features can be so vast, right? And the whole point is simple, sounds simple, customer relationship management. But at the same time, there's so much that goes into it that, you know, each set, uh, each SaaS has some functionality that they've just kind of neglected or pushed off or done the bare minimum, but they might do say email marketing the best, right? Or they really, uh, you know, they let you track really detailed reports or, you know, whatever they do the best. And I feel like a lot of SaaSes miss a really big opportunity just to kind of double down on that and say, this is what we do the best and why, you know, why you should pick us, right? Yeah. No, that's, that's a really good point. That's something I think we, we've discovered over the last couple of years, which is we, we, when I took over the business, we were, I think our, we're sort of focused on messaging around like we're time tracking for with QuickBooks, but really where we stand out to your point, Brad is like, there's a lot of different time tracking. So what we're not good at is like for people that want to clock in and clock out, like at a retail store, like that's not a good use case of our product. So now we talk more about, you know, time tracking for professional services because that's where we feel like we we can differentiate. So if you want something really easy to use and you're an architecture firm, if you look at the landscape of time trackers, I feel like we're, you know, the best or if not one of the best at that for that type of company. And so, yeah, I think, you know, that gets into the, the messaging part, which is brought, you know, within the marketing umbrella that the technical founders don't have the time or don't want to do that is an important part of like growth, which is like, how are we messaging our, our value prop to the market in a really clear way and helping differentiate in the sea of <laughs> sea of SaaS companies that are out there. Yeah. One other thing that uh, I've run into with some of this is um, so I've lately been going through some marketing training and I've been doing, I've been doing Russell Brunson's one funnel away is actually what I've been doing, but you know, yeah, I didn't have any kind of formal training on that. And so I just kind of had to, you know, I had kind of had to figure it out on my own or go get training on it or things like that. Because at the end of the day, there was just, you know, it wasn't something that I had ever done before. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm, I'm finding the same thing with like the podcasts and stuff is that initially when podcasts were new, people were looking for podcasts about JavaScript. And so we would just get referred by word of mouth. And now that there are a lot more out there, the, the issue with the competition isn't people are leaving our podcast for theirs. The, the issue is, is that, you know, if people ask what podcast people are listening to for JavaScript or freelancing in our case, right. Mm-hmm. It's um, well, there's, you know, there's all these six, seven, eight, nine, you know, a dozen of them out there that, you know, and so we're competing essentially for, you know, getting the first referral or, um, you know, having people's attention in the first place and not really, you know, things like that. And so I've had to get more involved in, okay, how do we get the word out on social media? How do we get the word out, you know, with ads, you know, which is something that Petra talked about a a few weeks ago, you know, how do I make, these other contributions to what I'm doing because yeah, you put it out there and you know, you get listed in like the iTunes directory or, you know, you get listed in a list of other things, but what really helps is having awareness, you know, on, on the other end. So there, and, and that basically boils down to marketing. So. Yeah. That's funny because I wholeheartedly believe in the whole, like, whatever it is, woo woo, whatever, uh, big idea thing that Seth Godin is always going with, right? Like creating the value and then people will come. Right. Uh, and that's just building something doesn't mean people are going to come, but by providing the value that's, you know, exceptional or being the best at something. But, you know, as we've talked about a billion times on this show to do that, you have to kind of define your pond so that you can be somewhat big fish in it. Right. And it's that kind of strategic thinking about how you're going to place yourself in the world, I think, that really leads to effectiveness. Because if you just if you just do the big idea thing and you and you have like a really big uh, thing that you're trying to like freelancing, freelancing is a huge topic, right? This show. Um, and when I discovered it, it was one of just a couple that I had to pick from. Right. But now there's a lot more noise out there. But you know, by building reputation, by providing value, by doing these things, you're still attracting people. Right. And then to take that and and translate it to other things, it's such a long-term strategy though. And like what I find refreshing about talking about like the different stuff with Petra and all this other stuff is it's ways to kind of amplify your voice. But if you're not careful, you can just become more noise. Right. And then that kind of turns people off. So there's definitely a fine line there as far as getting your message out there and becoming part of the noise, right. That people are trying to avoid anyway. So it's, it's there, it's always like kind of a tension or a struggle for me on where I fall in that spectrum. You know, it's interesting though, cause you're talking about this and this is that that's a place that I was at for a while. It's like, well, I don't want to be too markety or salesy or, you know, basically part of the, the din out there on the internet. And what I figured out was if, if I'm out there, visible to most of the people that I'm trying to reach, then, you know, in other words, if I'm getting in front of the right people, it's not noise, right? right. Um, it, it, it's value. I'm adding value to them. And so what essentially the, I had to get past was that whole idea of, yeah, I don't want to be making noise. I don't want it to be salesy. Um, and I still don't, but what I do want to do is I want to make sure that I'm putting my message out there as often as possible to help the people that I can help. And, 
that puts me in a position to actually, you know, do the kind of marketing that I want to do because at the end of the day, day, it makes a difference. No, I think that's a really good way to put it because that's kind of like, I, I really did not want to be part of that noise when I was first putting together marketing efforts and putting myself out there, but it's so weird. But if you're not helping people, if you're not getting in front of those people, you're not able to help them. So getting it out there, putting your message out there is definitely uh, an important aspect of it. But it's one that I struggled with trying to figure out for sure. Yeah, there's a book that I read. I'm trying to find find it, but um, essentially, and I'll find it here in a minute. But uh, the idea was, was that, and he's talking about being like number one in your market. And I think it was Ready, Fire, Aim by Michael Masterson. But he talks about how if you're number one in, in an area, right, then it's really easy to maintain being number one. And when people go out and look for you, they'll find you, right? Because you're number one. You're the one that everybody talks about. But you can be overtaken if you're, you know, and we've already talked a little bit about this, if your product's quality isn't as good, or if, you know, if somebody is just getting something right on a regular basis that you're not, you can eventually be overtaken. But in order for you to be overtaken, um, if you're doing everything right, they've got to spend a ton of money. And even if you're not, if you're getting it mostly right, Mm -hmm. they still have to spend a ton of money to overtake you because they basically have to buy the awareness that you're getting for free. Right. And so um, at the end of the day, what you want to do is, yeah, you want to be out there and you want to be the go-to person or go-to company or go-to freelancer in that space, right? So you own that space. And then you want to make sure that there's no way that those folks can overtake you. And so you do the things that continue to bring the presence of mind so that no matter how much they spend, they can't catch up. Right. Yeah. It's, um, I struggled with that too, I guess, for weirdly, even though I'm, I kind of grew up in the marketing world, like even doing this stuff, I was hesitant to do it for a long time, but then I, I don't know. I kind of had a similar journey to what you guys described, which is if I'm, if we're going to, you know, get customers and, and help people improve what they're doing from a time tracking perspective, the only way to do that is to, is for them to know about our product. And the only way for them to know about our product is for us to share. <laughs> uh, so it, I don't know. I think some people's nature is quieter and, and some people like, you know, sharing and it's something I, I, I don't know it, if you, if you feel, I don't, it's not necessarily uh natural for at first to do marketing type stuff. It kind of feels, I don't know, I don't want to say wrong, but like, uh, like you're cheesy or, but if the product is helping someone, I think that's where you have to focus on. If you like, um, if your product is helping someone do their job better, then that even if it, you know, requires you to tell them or create a video with music on it or something that might be viewed as an outsider is kind of cheesy, uh, you know, that's how you, you have to sort of get over that hump in order to, to market well. So I would encourage even like, let's say you are a technical founder and you, you don't want to partner up with somebody and that's just what you're struggling with internally is just sort of getting over that feeling um, there is, I don't know, just try it, <laughs> try going, putting yourself in that uncomfortable spot of making a, a demo video and, uh, 
I think it gets easier the more you do it and you start to just the the anxiety around it goes away and you, and you start to sort of settle into the, like, this is what I'm building is valuable to people. And that that's, what's important. Nothing ever gets easier over time. It only gets easier when you do it. That's the funny thing. Like everybody thinks they can prepare for these things. It doesn't matter what it is. If you've never done it before, you might suck at it. You might be okay at it, but chances are you're not going to be great. No, yeah. Unless you get over that, you know, initial, you know, bump of, okay, I'm giving myself permission to fail at this. I mean, that's the big thing, right? Because that's, that's, you're never going to know if you don't do it. That's the thing with my kids. I'm always watching them like, oh, they don't want to fail at something. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the TV they watch or influence or we're just born that way or whatever, but skin your knee, kid. Just try to ride the bike. (laughs) You will get better at it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I had the painful experience with like onboard, like we, for customer support, when I, like I mentioned, I, I did that for the first six months and we didn't have a lot of great content. So I would, I started creating like YouTube videos and they were so bad at first. Like I seeing yourself on screen, like I, you know, I'd be sharing my screen, but you could also see me or I don't know. Those are still out there, but they're they're bad. (laughs) But I've each one got a little bit better. I wouldn't say I'm great at it, but, uh, definitely, uh, I kept the customer in mind. So like the content was fine, but the quality and production value was not, not great. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, so I've been doing this one funnel away challenge and what was funny was that, you know, they're going in and they're telling people, um, you know, you just got to do it. You know, you just got to go out and do it. Um, if you haven't created content before, just get over it. And I decided that I was going to do something a little bit different. And, um, and so I, I decided not to do a podcast, even though that was one of the options, just because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty used to that. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I'm going to do something a little bit harder, a little bit different. And what I ran into was, so I decided to do YouTube, you know, and you talking about this reminded me of that. So I've been doing it for about two weeks and I've been talking about podcasting because I'm working on a podcasting course and I, you know, I want to get the the funnel together for that and get people in and get them started, you know, on building their podcast and running their podcast. But um, anyway, it's, it's been really interesting because yeah, you know um, the amount of time I have in a day, I have enough time to uh, flip on my computer, go to YouTube, hit the go live button and just talk at the camera. (laughs) Right. And I know they're not great videos, but yeah, like you said, the content's there. And the thing is, is um, a friend of mine, Chris Kremitzos, who runs the PodFest podcast conference, he wrote a book called uh, start ugly. And if you start ugly, you'll get better. Yeah. And so that that's where I'm at. And so that's what I'm doing as I'm working on it just, you know, at that level. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll move up one, one thing at a time. Yeah. I don't know what it is about that psychological leap that you need to like push that go live button for YouTube. There's something that seems daunting the first time you do it and then gets easier. Well, if you go watch YouTube videos, like everybody, well, not everybody, but I mean, the ones that are really getting traction are people that have folks that edit their videos and make them look a certain way and flow a certain way. And I know that mine aren't that way, right? They don't have the nice cover. They don't have the, you know, the visual aids or anything like that. And the reality is, is you, you just have to get out and do it. Right. Yeah. Right. 
Um, another example that I can come up with just off the top of my head is um, I've been a Ruby on Rails developer for years and years. And initially when Ruby on Rails came out, David Heinemeyer Hansen did a screencast where he showed off Ruby on Rails. And it's about 10 minutes long, I think. And he must have said, whoops, about 20 times, <laughs> you know, through the whole video, right? And so he's, he's showing you how to build a controller in Rails and then he mistypes something or, you know, gets an error and whoops. And, but, but the thing is, is it, it, it still had the impact, right? It still got people to go try it and adopt right, it. Right. And that, that's where you're at. Yeah. One of my friends called it the whoops heard around the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I still do it, but my first, uh, the amount of ums and like filler. Oh yeah. It was, it was, and nauseating to hear back. <laughs> that's, well, and that's, I, that's one of the things yeah. you have to work on, right? You yeah. practice it. You did that. Those are things that I, I definitely got better at as I went along the video. Cause you, you're more mindful of it. Yep. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the views on view podcast. Every week we bring in a guest panelist from the view community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. So what was the third, the final thing? Yeah, so the last one was, um, you know, whatever you did to get you to this level is not the thing that's going to take you to the next level. So if you want to, you know, double the size of your business or triple the size of your business, you're going to have to think differently. Um, and that oftentimes is you know, relates to like investing in people so that the person who has the, you know, the responsibility of growing the business can focus on that thing. And, and that's when you're bootstrapping a company and you're the founder, you're probably just doing too many things. Um, mm -hmm. And you need to optimize your time on things that will grow the business and outsource the things that are not growing the business. So that includes like, you know, a customer support. I think if, if people were to audit their time as a technical founder, they'd probably be surprised at how much time they're working on things that are not growing the business. And there's probably also like a psychological thing of like they're, if they've achieved a certain size where they're taking money out, like not taking them as money, money, as much money out and putting it back into the business in terms of hiring a person is like a mental hurdle that they need to clear. But again, it gets back to like, well, you can continue to do what you're doing and have the same size business for eternity, or you can do something different and grow it. So, um, those, those things, I think it's not just technical founder. I think it's any founder that achieves a certain size of a business and they, and you're, you're figuring out how to try to go to the next level. You have to think differently. You have to invest in different things that you didn't historically invest in or you're not going to break out of that wherever you're at today. Yep. But yeah, I think those three, I mean, those, I don't know if, if uh, sort of encapsulating that into a talking point for technical founders, like if I think there's different ways you can do all three of those things, like um, from pricing, as I mentioned, I would stay close to your customers under maybe if you're not doing as much customer support or it doesn't require that much proactively reach out to your customers to get to know them, just set up customer calls and learn more about what they do and, and how they're using the product and what they were doing before they were using the product, you know, use some of the public tools that are available around pricing and like things like ProfitWell that can 
that can help you get your arms around what the value of your product is. Um, if you're, you know, to the second point, if you're not doing marketing, either force yourself to make the time or hire someone to, to do the marketing things that need to be done. Cause again, the old trope that like, if you build a good product, customers will come is, is not true most of the time. And then lastly, you know, you got to invest in your business to take it to the next level. So outsource the things that are, that are not helping you grow the business so that you have more time to focus on the things that can, that can grow it. And I would encourage you to audit your time to really have a, an act, you know, a real feel for how you're spending your time currently and how you could do it differently to, to grow it. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know any, um, those are, those are my thoughts and technical founders, please don't to take any offense to, to, I think, uh, these are broad things and there's plenty of generic things you could say about marketing people, which are also true (laughs) and that, uh, they have blind spots as well. Yep. I think one of my big takeaways from this is that I need to audit my time again. That was a tip that uh, I actually got from somebody on this show a while ago when I was like very first starting out, I realized I was spending too much time on stuff. And I was like, you know what, why don't I just keep a log of everything I do when I sit down at the computer for, you know, a week and see what that looks like. And it was mind blow, like ridiculously life altering. I could not believe what I spent time on. I just, you know, especially at the time I was fumbling around with stuff, trying to sort things out and figure out where I needed to invest in my business. And, uh, you know what, if you want to get your life back and really take a look at where you are spending your time so that you're not, that's, I mean, it's such a simple thing to do. And it's kind of hard the first couple of days that you do it because you're, you, you just forget to jot down what you were doing. But holy smokes, it was super powerful just to be mindful about what I was spending time on. Yeah. It's probably good to set up just like, I don't know, once a year to do that because it, because your time does change as the business changes what you're spending your time on. You can get sucked into not optimal things (laughs) pretty easily. Yep. I have a pick related to that. So yeah. Uh, maybe we'll just transition over there and I'll shout it out and it, maybe it'll jog a memory for Brad. Maybe it was the one I picked way back when. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and do some picks. Um, Brad, why don't you go first and then I'll throw my pick out. Sure. So um, actually I wasn't really ready for picks. Like I'm looking around my room, like what, what have I done recently? All right. Well, I've I'll, been throw, doing I'll a throw lot some of out. Go ahead, go throw them out and I'll, I'll take a look. So I'm going to pick a couple of books and I'm going to pick a tool. So the tool first, um, and this is something that I do periodically. So the tool is called toggle, T-O-G-G-L dot com. And it's a time tracker. And what I use it for is it is free. And I just, yeah, like uh, Brad said, I just run it and, um, you know, keep track of what I'm spending my time on. And then, yeah, at the end of a week, I've got a pretty good idea of where, where I'm spending time that I shouldn't be spending time. And so, um, yeah, so I'm just going to put that uh, pick out there. That's definitely one of the uh, tips that I have for people. I'm actually working on like a, a productivity cheat sheet. And it's just going to have like five or six things that you can do right off the bat that'll increase your productivity. Um, a couple of them have to do with social media. A couple of them have to do with... Um, 
yeah, a few other things. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to pick that. Um, and then the books I'm going to pick. So one is called, um, ready, fire, aim. We talked about that one. And then, um, the other one that I'm going to pick is called the automatic customer. And both of those talk about, uh, a lot of the stuff that we talked about here and give you some really concrete ideas of what you can do to, to get what you want out of your business. And then, um, man, I should just pick this other stuff that I've been going through. So another one that I'm going to pick is the 12 week year. And, uh, it's basically a way of planning out your, um, week and it, it does it in three month chunks. And that works for me because planning out a whole year is just hard for me to visualize. Um, a lot of times I'll, I'll say, I want to get these things done within the next three to five years and that's fine, but then I can break it down into concrete okay, this is what I've got to do within the next three months in order to make progress toward that in a meaningful way. Um, so I really like that. And then I also just finished another book called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And um, it's, it's interesting because last year I went through a whole bunch of setbacks. And the year before that, my dad passed away and I was pretty depressed for a while. And I realized that, um, especially after listening to this book, that a lot of that is really an opportunity and not necessarily a, uh, I mean, it's sad, it's rough, it's no fun. But instead of looking at it as a real downer and gee, the world isn't the way that I thought it was, um, it's it's been really positive for me to look at it and say, you know what, maybe these are opportunities for me to do something better or different or anyway. So I'm, I'm going to throw that out there as well. Um, and yeah, those are my picks. Brad, you ready to go? I'm ready. So I was thinking through, I had to go on like Amazon and see what I've gotten recently and, and check out some stuff. But uh, actually, as you were, this episode, I, I thought, I mean, what have I done recently? And, and that kind of relates. And one of the things that I did, I read April Dunford's book called Obviously Awesome. And I feel like a lot of what we talked about from a marketing perspective and getting your, your product to a next level, you're going to have to get to know your audience you know, effectively position your product. And obviously awesome was a book that I think had uh, tons of practical ways to actually position a product or a service. Um, and that's the big thing is getting the rubber to meet the road and actually figuring out how to do positioning. And um, uh, Philip Morgan's book was good. April Dunford's, um, what I liked about it was that it was if you're a, a product or service based business, they she had like some steps in there that you could basically follow to uh, position your product and, and to really understand why you're doing it, uh, as well as how to do it. So that was fantastic. So I'm going to I'm going to pick that book. Um, and then the other is a balance bike. Uh, if any of the people listening are parents and uh, are going to be teaching their kid to ride a bike, a balance bike and uh, is just like fantastic. I've never thought about teaching a kid how to ride a bike until I had to teach my six-year-old daughter. And I feel like I was a failure as a parent as I was going through that process. It was terrifying for everybody. Um, but it's, it's kind of fun to, you know, be on a balanced bike and, and learn some fundamentals and see them, you know, learn how to do that. So anyway, I'm going to pick a balanced bike and uh, I'm going to also put a link in here as like a video that, kind of explains why balance bikes work. I think the balance bike in my case would have saved me and my kids lots and lots of screaming. <laughs> um, 
I remember in particular my oldest, my 14 year old. Um, of course, he was younger then, but yeah, I'd get him going and he'd ride and he could get down the street, but he hadn't quite figured out turning. And so he'd run right into the curb. And then um, he has he has some behavioral issues that, you know, or diagnosed disorders. And so as soon as he crashed, he'd just get up and start screaming and you could hear it echo all the way down the road. And I'm like, Oh man, my kid. Right. So anyway, um, we have a balanced bike for my four-year-old. So I'm, I'm curious to see if that helps. <laughs> That's awesome. Mark, do you have some picks for us? Sure. So, uh, one book I've reread recently, it's a 20 plus year old book, but, um, it's a uh, high output management by Andy Grove. So Andy Grove was the CEO of, uh, Intel back in the day. Um, and the book's about like, uh, you know, creating businesses that, you know, can consistently create high outputs of things. So it, uh, right now I'm reading cause I, I think minute seven is at a point where we're trying to figure out, or I'm trying to figure out like, how do we get to that next level? And part of that is going to be, we need to, higher and grow larger teams, I think. And it's not something I have a lot of experience doing. So it's a good reread for me. Um, I've gotten a lot of value out of it. Uh, so I'd recommend that book and I'll, I'll post it in here as well. Um, yeah. And the other thing, this is sort of, I don't know how to articulate this one, but it's something I've done recently. I don't know if you guys get that late at night sort of idea or like thing that you can't shake. Um, but I get those from time to time and they're usually like something I'm excited about and then I can't go back to sleep. <laughs> so recently I've, I've tried like getting up and sort of sketching them out in some form, either as notes. Um, and it's helped me sort of execute on them better. Whereas like, and then I can also sleep better. Um, so I don't know, it's kind of a weird pick, but I, I'm also, when I'm drifting off to sleep, I'll something will get stuck in my head and I can't sort of shake it. So if anyone gets that, I would encourage you to jump out of bed and uh, write it down, sketch it out. One, it'll help you actually execute or figure it out, whatever the problem or the, uh, the idea is. And two, you probably will, will sleep a little bit better. So, uh, give that a shot if you are you like me and get, get stuck in your own head at night. Sounds good. Hey, Mark, if people want to find you online or reach out, where do they find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at uh, at Mark Summy. It's M A R C S U M M E. You can email me if you want to talk about anything entrepreneurship, SaaS related, uh, anything business related. It's just Mark M A R C at minute seven dot com. And then if you are, you know, a freelancer or someone who's looking, uh, law firm, architect firm, anybody, professional services looking for a time or expense tracking software product check out minute7.com. It's M-I-N-U-T-E, the number seven.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and talking to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Good to see you guys again. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing it again sometime down the road. All right. You too. We'll uh, wrap this one up, folks, and we'll be back next week. In the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.